I'll just add a little bit to what Martha said, just a great uh, deal of appreciation for all of you that serve with our young people. As we think about the thing that we're talking about today, our witness for Jesus, one of the most profound ways we do that is shaping that witness for the future in our young people. And so many of you make that happen, uh, bringing your kids and getting to church, but also serving and, uh, and helping us raise each other's kids in Christ. It's a it's a big deal, and uh, we don't get to see that uh, in all in one place. That video kind of captures that, which is, which is pretty cool. So throughout this month, we have been reframing our thinking about church. It can be a, a kind of thing that we come in, and we get our thing, and then we go. But our vision of a church is different than that, that we would covenant together, and that that covenant starts with God's promise to us, and then is really about a promise that we make to each other that connects us in, in a life together. And that forms something new in the world. That's our, that's our vision. That new thing in the world is what we keep offering ourselves to. Humble as we are, as maybe ordinary as we think we are, even through our failures and our, and our, and our, and our struggles. Thinking it is about our strengths, but really realizing it is just as much about our weaknesses and being human. Somehow God uses all of that. And that promise for us is built on five things. That we pledge to one another to be loyal to the church, to be loyal to Christ and through his church, do all in our power to strengthen his ministries through our prayers. And we've talked about what it means to be a people of prayer. And our presence, which really just means kind of showing up for one another in, in dynamic ways. And our gifts, giving of ourselves, giving of our resources, pooling our resources, and using them as an offering to God, our service, the work of our hands. And then the collective term for all of that together is witness. The thing that is kind of the, the overarching umbrella, uh, the, the container that can, holds the others. And, and in New Testament, that word is an all-encompassing word. It comes from Acts chapter 1. And I didn't do the scripture earlier. So, Jim, if you want to find that, we're going to, we're going to read that scripture as we go to the, the call of disciples to be witnesses of Jesus, we find this in uh, the, the, the first chapter of Acts. And so Jesus says to the disciples, it's not for you to know the time or the place, the dates, when the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. Let's pray together. God, would you meet us here as those who are offering ourselves to this same promise and this same possibility? Would you meet us in our strengths and in our weaknesses, our, in our humanness, that we might be somehow those who point to your greater love for this world? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. That word, you hear the kids, by the way? Can you hear them? Yeah, it's like on, on cue almost. Uh, th that word witness in Acts 1 is an all-encompassing word. It's actually where we get the word martyr uh, fr from, uh, from, from Greek. But what that means is uh, we're talking about somehow giving our whole lives as a message, recognizing that, that our lives do have a message. Henry Nouwen uses the term for witness. He uses the term living reminder. Uh, so that 
our strengths and our weaknesses, our successes and our failures, our, our lives become somehow something that points to Jesus. Parker Palmer writes about letting our lives speak. It's a recognition that our lives have a message. And so as we offer our, to God our gifts and our struggles, our life purpose and our failure, we become a living message of how God loves, how God heals, how God saves. And there is a consistency in that, a holistic uh, way of thinking about it. We can say one thing, but our lives will say the fuller thing. And the hope is that, that fuller thing that is said is a word of hope, is a word of redemption in a world that needs that. The late, great Dallas Willard said, the most important thing in your life is not what you do, but who you become. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. And that sounds daunting to all of us, probably. But there's hope in this. This is about who you're becoming and not the idealized you, not the you that has it all together for just a fleeting moment, but the real honest to goodness you with your personality and your quirks and your idiosyncrasies that somehow God will work even in people like us to, to represent Jesus that's remarkable. And it is our goal. It is our aspiration. It is our hope. This is what we live for, that our lives would be living reminders of Christ. And so witness is more about the who than the do, so to speak. The, the, the do flows out of, is a result of. What we do is a result of who we are, who we're becoming. And so we are all hopeful for that future. The, the thing that we're becoming is something that would point to Jesus. But the good news is that we build on the past. It's not just a future thing, it's also the past. Our church began 115 years ago in that hope. I don't know how many things that you are a part of that have been around for 115 years, over a century, probably not that many. Uh, and what we find is that there's a remarkable, remarkable consistency to this, that somehow the, this thing that was planted a very long time ago continues on in us, that we're carrying forth something uh, so here's how our church was, was started. The pastor of State Street United Methodist Church uh, at the time uh, was Dr. W.C. Lloyd. One day he was in his study praying, and, uh, and State Street was doing pretty well at that time. This would have been the early 1900s. Now, I don't know if you know this, but some of the, the young adults uh, and the youths uh, are now calling the time when I was born. I was born in 1976. Uh, they, they're calling that the late 1900s now. Have you heard this? It's really depressing. The late 1900s. This is the early 1900s. W.C. Lloyd uh, was, was in his study praying, and things were going well. But rather than be okay with that, he prayed what we would call an opening prayer or a breakthrough prayer, a prayer that opened him up to more possibility. We've been praying that kind of prayer Throughout January, we'll end in that kind of prayer today. And so he prayed this prayer in the, in the early 1900s. Lord, what would you have me do more? For I want to further the kingdom's work. And out of that prayer, uh, he had a strong sense that, that State Street needed to plant a church to provide a, a, a presence for Christ, a witness for Christ. Uh, and the, it was a, a, a geographical thing on Broadway past Kenton Street. It was the edge of town. And so Broadway uh, was, was, was planted. And we haven't been on Broadway since 1959, by the way. 
but the name and the vision have stuck. That witness has carried through 115 years. And so we wanted to show just a few points along the way. You can't cram 115 years into a, a whole service. We've just got a, a few minutes, but you'll see some of the high points as we think about our history together. Let's watch. turn to the future, let me share one more thing from the past. We found an old bulletin uh, recently, and um, it reminded me of how really the things that we are called to do in the future are, are somehow a rediscovery of things that we probably knew in the past along the way. We found this bulletin from December 9th, 1945. Most Sundays, we will say some version of everyone's welcome here, no exceptions. And there at the bottom of that bu bulletin is this message you are always welcome at Broadway. That, that extension of God's grace and hospitality has been part of our life together and is a thing that we renew for the future. We somehow got invited into this thing with, with Jesus and now are part of extending that same grace to others. Well, the book of Acts was written in the transition between that past and the future. 
uh, between the acts of Jesus, so to speak, and that we read about in the Gospels, to the acts of the disciples. We, uh, we, we actually, the, the fuller name of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. And in some ways, it gets at that tension that we've already named, that what we're talking about here is something that we do, but it is mostly about the who. In fact, as we shorten the book of Acts, and we call it Acts, that's a, a focus on the do part, right? The action part, the acts. But the fuller name helps us see what's really going on here. It is the acts of the apostles, or these people who encountered Jesus, these people who uh, really had some failure and some struggle in understanding what it meant to follow Jesus. These people who were recipients of something special at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, which was the source, the driving engine of their lives, and that, that it really did transform the things around them. What they did was the outflow of who they had become through God's grace in them. And that is maybe the most obvious thing we can say about how God works. It's always about the who. If we think about the stories of Scripture, the witness from the beginning of the, uh, of the Bible all the way through is about, it's about people. It's about people like us. And how God does extraordinary things through people like us. It's remarkable. The who is the heart of the message. And as I think about those people, and as, as you maybe think about those people in your life, I, I think there's some things that we can say about those folks, the people who've had the most profound impact on you, the people that I have, as I think about, who've had the most profound impact on me. It has been life-changing. Uh, the way I talk about my story is that the church gave us a better story. I came out of a family system of generational poverty and alcoholism. We did not have a good narrative, a good way of thinking about who we were. And the church redefined uh, that for us. It really helped us break out of some things that still hold, there, there are members of my family that are, are still caught up in those cycles. But somehow in the church, I heard a different message. I heard who I really was. And that, that identity message began to shape me over time. What's your story? There are people who have represented Christ for you. And so I wanted to say a few things about those kinds of folks and tell a couple stories before communion today. As we think about what makes those folks special and then what we're called to live into, I really came around three words, and they alliterate. So you know when they, they start with the same letter, it has to come from Jesus, right? It's just like plop right down. But you might want to write these down as, as, we, as we go forward. And then, I, then, you know, it's hard to do everything in a sermon. So I, what I decided to do was give you a couple reflection questions. That if you wanted to take these three ideas and uh, apply them to your life this week, if you wanted to maybe think about some, some reflection around them in prayer, this might be a way for you to go deeper. With the hope that each one of us would be that kind of person. That, that this would be our goal, that somehow our lives would speak, somehow that we would be living reminders of Jesus, the kind of person that Jesus would be if he were us. And so let me offer up three words. The first is freedom. As I think about the people who have had the most profound impact on me, they have this almost intangible quality of liberation. So in another way, they're not perfect people, but they are released people. There are people that have worked through their stuff, have found healing 
have found wholeness, who have found grace, not despite their stuff, but through it somehow. They've somehow incorporated their, their stuff, their circumstances into a cohesive whole. They have been released. Uh, and that's not easy. Some of the people that I know that I respected the most have a point in their story, as I've gotten to know their story, that they were so low and so, so vulnerable that it would be hard to imagine that they would survive that kind of experience, not to mention be able to come out on the other side of it and find wholeness. There's a freedom there. I heard a Catholic nun speak several years ago. She said something that stuck with me. She said, wrongdoing zaps our spiritual energy. And that's what sin does. It's, and it's really not just what we do. It is what we do, but also what's done to us. So kind of working both ways this plays out, the result is that we are held back. Wrongdoing zaps our spiritual energy. It, it holds us back. And so the people I know who have had the most profound influence and witness are the people that have found the release from that, that somehow they have incorporated their failures and faults into a cohesive whole and have a deep reliance on grace, knowing that they need it in each moment. The result is like having blockages removed from your arteries. The grace is now able to flow. The energy is contagious. And as John says in John 8, 36, is G, quoting the words of Jesus, if the Son sets you free, then you're really free. And there is something so contagious about authentic freedom. It, it is a point of hope for those of us who feel still, still feel blocked and still feel held back in some way. It is an ongoing thing. But when that is released, when we're freed up, it is like we're turned loose. So a couple questions. One, the most obvious, what's zapping your spiritual energy? That's something to, to pray through. What is zapping my spiritual energy? And then two, will I risk telling my story? Because I think, I think, what, what maybe the key behavior in all of this is for us together is having people that we're able to be honest with. In fact, it's been studied that if you have, the, the, a key factor for your overall health and wholeness is that you have one person who knows your full story. And a good part of what we do is create environments where it, it becomes safe enough for you to do that, to, to tell your story, to be vulnerable, to take a risk. And uh, that happens in steps over time. It doesn't happen just all at once. In my experience, I think it takes a while, maybe five years and, 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 and maybe 10, uh, depending on how hard we work our program. But the goal in all of that is freedom that you would be able to find a cohesiveness to your life and a grace that holds all the, the broken parts together. The second word is uh, from freedom is formation. The people that I know who have the most profound witness have been shaped over time. They let God's grace work on them. And they use the means of grace, the, what we would call spiritually transformative actions, to partner with God in that formation. And so this is a framework for everything that we do uh, all of our spiritual practices, all of our relationships, it is to understand that all of that is really about forming us. This is about who we are becoming and that we can partner with grace in that formation. We can partner with God in that formation, even letting the events of our lives shape us, the highs and the lows shaping us. Scripture talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
repentance, metanoia, is about changing our mind about things. We think one way, but we learn uh, through Jesus to think another. And so that, sh- that shaping over time, that redefining the way we see the world and how we think is, is transformational. Grace wears on us, like maybe like rocks in a stream. The, the powerful force of grace over time takes out the rough edges, knocks off the jagged attitudes that we have. But ironically, it doesn't make us all the same. In fact, quite the opposite. This is not cookie cutter. The other thing that happens in our formation is that we somehow become more fully who we were intended to be all along. We don't become someone else, we become ourselves. Our redeemed selves, our renewed selves, our liberated selves. The people I know who have the most profound witness are very unique. Sometimes they're weird and they're okay with it. God's used their personality that's been given to them and shaped that and accentuated it and made them compelling, a compelling version of who they really are, not the false self that they learned to be. So formation offers these questions. How am I cooperating with grace in my own formation? How does that work for me? It's different for different people. It is not cookie cutter either. And then two, what is my God-given uniqueness? Maybe you thought that was the thing that you had to get rid of. Perhaps, perhaps it's the thing that God wants to use. And finally, our witness is built on focus. So freedom, formation, and focus. You can't do everything, and you can't do anything perfectly. And I think sometimes we think we need to figure those things out. What's the thing that we're going to get right and then get to it? And the people I know that do this well... They just kind of get in there. They take step after step, small step after small step into their focus. They don't wait for their calling to drop down out of the sky. They walk into it. They're the people that do it through trial and error. They find something that they care about. They find something that they're halfway decent at. And they find something that the world needs. And at that intersection between what we are passionate about or what we care about, what we're good at and what's needed, we find our calling. And when people find that, it's magic. I don't, it's not actual magic. It's, it's, it's special, it's indescribable. We would say supernatural at times. It's hard to describe when people walk into that. So I, I thought of some examples. This is a picture of Ken Hunley. Some of you will know him. I think a few of us uh, here, especially at 930, uh, were in his youth group. Um, Ken uh, has been the youth minister in Madisonville, at Madisonville First United Methodist Church, for 35 years. He's retiring. This is a picture out of the Messenger Inquirer article about him a couple weeks ago. Do you want to know what the average tenure of a youth minister in the church is? Two years. Ken's seriously throwing off the curve. And I've known Ken for a long time. Some of you have as well. Uh, Ken is uh, a very much a version of himself. Uh, and uh, he has been investing in the lives of kids for a very long time. Ken's been at it so long that he has kids that have grown up in his youth group who now have kids who have grown up in his youth group. And if he stayed much longer, he would have kids of kids of kids in his youth group. That picture, by the way, is from uh, their ministry in Guatemala. They've, he's been involved in 
lots of missional things in the community and in the world. And they've been going to Guatemala for, I think, 10 or 12 years. Um, so much so that his daughter uh, is, uh, um, is actually in Guatemala full time. Uh, she came through his youth group and now is there. That's her life's work. That's how deep it goes. It's about long-term faithfulness. This is someone who just kept showing up. I know what ministry is like. I know there was a time when Ken, one of Ken's best friends died at, at a very young age. Um, this is about investing people's, in people's lives and keep showing up even when it's not easy, building on the foundations that we've laid and doing that in a sustainable way. The Messenger Inquirer article asked, uh, uh, talked about what Kim was going to do next, which is a retirement question, right? And he said, people say now I don't have to go to all those youth ball games and all those dance recitals. And he said, no, now I can go to more of those, but to less church meetings. Recently, someone sent me this picture from KidZone upstairs. And what I love about the video we sh showed earlier and then the noise that came through a little bit ago is that uh, there are things going on that we don't see in our adult world. And, um, and we think as adults that we, that we have maybe a better picture and sometimes there need to be reminders that, uh, that the, the kids have it figured out out of the mouths of babes. This is a picture uh, of Sam Corbin. Uh, and uh, his buddy in KidZone, Jenny Tagliabashi. And we talked to Jenny, who is very, she's very, not a, a big public person. Uh, it, it was okay for her, uh, she said, if it was okay for the Cor with the Corbins to show this picture. And you can see Sam, like some of the kids that you'll see coming in and out, has some headphones on. He's going to cancel some, uh, some noise. Uh, he has some special needs. And he just needs someone, uh, as I talked to Katie, his mom, uh, he needs someone who speaks his language. And if there's anyone that fits that bill, it's Jenny Tagliabashi. When I first met Jenny, she was on our staff. She was on staff here before I was, and she worked in our office. She did communication things and um, some technology things. But she left her job uh, to find her calling. Her calling first was as a, a, an aide in a special needs classroom, and then uh, now as a teacher. Uh, and uh, we say that Jenny is like the kid whisperer. There is something, as she has walked into that, there is something about her uniqueness that makes her uniquely capable to do this, to, to meet someone where they are, to speak a language without using words, for people to feel comfortable. And the thing that I would say most about that is the, the impact is, is actually what I see in the parents of those kids. And I've, and I've, had, I've had parents weep, literally weep, trying to describe what Jenny has done for them. And, um, and, and a good number of them would say, I can, I can be present here because she's present there. Uh, and I would, I would have to be there if, if she weren't living into her calling. This is the power of focus, uh, and, and it is an example of walking to, into that over time. And so... Uh, let me ask these questions or, or, or offer up these questions. What is the intersection between what I care about and what I'm decent at and what I, what I, I know the world needs? And find in that, you know, the intersection of our calling. And then perhaps what should I stop doing so that I can do that more? <laughs> and find the liberation to, to say we can't do everything, so we're going to figure out what we're going to do now in this season of life, and which is an ongoing question. Let me suggest, too, that that actually, those, those words give us actually another thing that alliterates. So we talk about freedom and formation and focus. But then it led me thinking as I worked through that to our vision statement as a church that we would come fully alive in a relationship with Jesus. 
And if I, if, I, if I think about what it means to be a witness for Jesus, I think that's it. It's this, this indescribable thing that happens when we become fully alive in him. And that's our most profound witness. It's not something you can fake. It's not something that you can force. It is something that happens as God works in us. But it does happen. And that's the goal. That's the thing. This is our hope. Ordinary people like us, fully alive, having a profound witness wherever we are because the life of Jesus courses through us. And as I think about people who have that in some, maybe some surprising spaces in a secular space, I think of Courtney Stevens, and we asked her to share her story, and here it is. Stevens, and uh, I currently work at the Warren County Public Library. I am the interim director. Before that, um, and maybe how I got here is I was a um, youth minister for State Street United Methodist Church, and then I fell in love with writing and became an author, moved to Nashville for a period of time, but continued to be a professor of ministry uh, at Lindsey Wilson College, and then I was coming to a book festival that has been located here for a very long time, the Southern Kentucky Book Festival. And the director of the library looked at me because I was griping about Nashville traffic, <clears throat> which is totally worth griping about, and um, said, you know what would fix that? You could come back here and work for me. It's interesting. When I was leaving youth ministry, one of my friends sat me down and she said, you're not leaving the ministry. You're just getting into literary ministry and you're going to figure out what that means. You're going to go from a group of like having 30 kids to having like America could be your youth group. There was a time period in Texas when so many kids lined up and told me their stories just one after another and they all cried all over me that when I came home and I was putting my laundry away um, in, into the basket, every single one of my shirts had snot on the shoulders from all the kids I got to hug. And you're like, you know, maybe I don't have to just be in a church serving in vocational ministry to know that God can use me. There's a Pew study, and I'm not going to quote it correctly, but... Um, the basic outcome of the study is that the library is the most trusted space, public community space in every single community across the United States. And so that in, in and of itself means that it's a safe sanctuary. If, if we decide it's sacred, we bring the sanctuary, right? Everything about the library system says you are equal here. And like, what would it be like if the church had that same assumption. There's all kinds of places where I find that to be true. Um, like the number of, of moms that come in and they're finding their people for the first time. They've just, like we have um, baby time and toddler time and preschool lab and family story time. And you know how it is as a young parent. Like you're just exhausted. You don't know what you're doing. You know, you just, can we show up somewhere? And then your community's there and you didn't even know it. And your kids are growing and, and feeling 
you could just watch them becoming who they're going to be. There's something very rewarding about being part of that process. You know, during COVID, um, we found ourselves in an amazing partnership with the school systems where they said, we have Wi-Fi, but we don't have vehicles. Um, and we said, we have vehicles, but we don't have Wi-Fi. And so literally the school system equipped four different vehicles of ours with Wi-Fi. And we went out every day and parked at apartment complexes and we did pop-up schools. We'd throw up the tents and put out the tables and the kids would come with their Chromebooks and there was school. No one is a stranger to the pain and devastation from the tornadoes. I got a real benefit in that period of time because I was on the ground at Jennings Creek um, with the Red Cross, with the central office <laughs> staff who worked tirelessly around the clock because I got to see the community come together at the exact place of where the pain was happening. One of the first days of the tornado, driving around and like meeting with every leader and going, okay, what services are you providing right now? So then I could go back and report to everyone else. And then I got to throw this big, huge meeting. And I'm like, everybody that's like a playmaker in this, that's trying to serve, like, what if we all got in the same space and talked about what we were doing? And everybody came and everybody talked and so much life came out of it and so many connections came out of it. And I actually think that those connections still exist today. And I think if the church continued to do that, like to not have any territories, but to share resources across the entire community, we would see more healing than we even believe is possible, just like we did in the days after the tornado. I think it could be a state of reality, not just a state of emergency. Well, one, I was raised in a church that believed kids had a voice. And I love that we're a church like that. Just this morning, the kids were up front and like, they're up front and they're, they're the pastors for that moment. It's their arms and their hands telling the story of Jesus. and. I was lucky because I grew up in a church just like that. It was teeny tiny, but man, they thought the kids were just as valuable as everyone else. But I would love to see a, a church physical space that has the same perception of safety as the library. And I feel like that's possible here. And so I'm so grateful. There's so many, I think the term we used to use is marketplace ministers, um, non-vocational ministers, everyday folks who go out, do their job in their location and know that it's ministry the same as standing up front on Sunday morning. I don't know about you,